Welcome back to That One Record. I'm going to be now calling this Season 2. Had a bit of a break there. Big life changes, new job, bunch of stuff got in the way. But I'm back talking about uh, a bunch of records I love. Uh, I've done a bunch of interviews already. They're they're ready to go in the bank. Uh, The most fun I've ever had doing this, just deep diving on records I absolutely love, which brings me to today. We're talking about 2010's End Measured Mile from Make Do and Mend. I sat down with three members of Make Do and Mend, brothers James and Matt Carroll, as well as guitar player Mike O'Toole, and we talked about from the very beginning of Make Do and Mend. So I came across this band super early, digging through MySpace, as you'll see, and and fell in love with them. Their first show in Canada uh, was a house show in London, Ontario, where I played and previous guests of the show, Drew Thompson, was actually one of the early shows for Single Mothers. So pretty wild in retrospect to think back now. That was probably 2008, maybe even 2007, who knows. But for today, we're talking strictly and measured mile uh, from the recording process to why they chose paper and plastic to... Uh, how they eventually ended up on Rise Records, which at the time was was a bit of a surprise for someone like me, which we, they talked very candidly about uh, the decision-making process, maybe some doubts that were in the back of their mind about it. And I think this interview really encapsulates uh, just how hard this band worked, like true, true grinders, just touring all the time, uh, you know, a pretty rigorous recording schedule, putting everything into the studio. This is really one of the first bands I've had on the show that seemed to be so incredibly meticulous when they got into that recording studio setting. Uh, a lot of bands like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do the Touche episode, you know, recording a full record in four or five days. These are guys who, uh, not to say one is better than the other, but these are guys who really sit down and crank out and examine every single piece that goes into these songs. And they just have such a care for what they do. And I think the audience respected that and sensed it. These are some of the nicest people I have ever met. I came across them many, many times uh, after that first show in London. And every single time, every single time, they were just the nicest people you have ever met. Couldn't be more stoked on what you were doing. Remembered your band name. Remembered the last thing you had released. Uh, I, I still talk hockey with them, you know, via Instagram. Uh, although they're spread all over the United States right now, as you'll hear in the interview. But such a great band. Such an incredible record. Uh, the real start of the wave starting to develop. And uh, we really nailed down what was unique about Make, Do, and Men. Because... They're one of those bands that didn't really fit in everywhere, but at the same time, they fit everywhere. You know, they're playing hardcore shows. They're playing soft indie gigs. They're playing punk shows. They're doing it all. They didn't care. They were unapologetically themselves at all times. And I, I couldn't have been happier to talk with this uh, this record with them. So stick around. We're going to dive right into the making of End Measured Mile from Make, Do, and Mend. Anyways, we have October 26, 2010, End Measured Mile comes out on paper and plastic. So I want to kind of start, because you had Bodies of Water before that. That was kind of my entry point. Uh, So I want to kind of back up to there. So with that, funny enough, I found that EP on MySpace. 
So I used to do I used to do like the friend dive. You find this band, and then whoever's in their top eight, you go to the next one. Top eight, yeah. yeah. And I remember mm-hmm. that night I had found either it either went you guys into title fight or title fight into you guys. Those were like the two big ones I found that night. And then bodies of water, you guys put up for free. It was just free download. What what was the thinking at that time behind releasing an EP that way? Uh, I mean, I think it was probably this is the only way we're going to get people to, to listen to it is if they don't have to pay anything for it. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't know. Do you guys have any like any memories as far as like the real sort of like motivation there? Yeah, it's funny because it's funny that you bring up that you found it on MySpace, Kyle, because as I think back to that time period and the choice to give it away for free my memories almost solely center around giving it away physically for free and i don't think about like we're going to put it on the internet for free and gain you know exposure and distribution through the internet Uh, but i think we did it just because it was sort of like part of checking the box at that point of like myspace and i don't know if pure volume was still around at that point but for me i was like you know we're gonna print a bunch of these cds and we are just gonna start giving them away as we a are doing weekend tours and like going on tour with our friends bands that we're starting to pick up and you know, tour regionally as well as around the country. And then as we started to be able to play a little bit more, um, but we put a ton of time and thought into the physical product of Bodies of Water. Um, We actually like took the time to create um, sort of DIY paper, like probably printer paper, packages for the cd we got custom stamps made um and stamped every single cd that we put together um and so for me that's when i think about that whole thing of giving it away for free it's about it was about printing these cds and just giving them away at shows whether we were playing or or with a friend's band and then so bridging that gap, so you put that out, you start playing, like you said, jumping on shows, tours with bands you know in the area. How does paper and plastic get involved in this process to go, hey, whatever your next record is, we, we want in, we want to put it out? Yeah, so they, so paper and plastic kind of ended up on our radar um, because they had released um, a Shook Ones record. Oh yeah. Um, and one of our first, one of our first kind of like, um, one of our first sort of like, like a, not official, but like you know, felt like it, like a real tour um, that wasn't just like you know, hitting people up on MySpace and going like, hey, can we come and play? You know, whatever. Um, uh, was a tour with Shook Ones. Um, you know, down the East Coast and back, uh, down to Fest in like the fall of of um, geez, I don't know what year that would have been. Probably two thousand nine. Yeah, um, 
Yeah. Um, and so I guess just to backtrack, you know, on the on the bodies of water thing. So we so we released it for free, both for download and like Matt was talking about, like the kind of physical, the physical copies. Um, and it, you know, it gained a, a a really nice amount of sort of like steam in the just like little you know kind of punk world, um, which was really cool. Um, and then. Uh, Tim McIntosh, who did a label out of Seattle, Washington called Panic Records, reached out um, and, you know, said, hey, heard the record. Um, his buddy, Nick, who is who is now and still um, a super close, close friend, um, had had put him on to the to the EP. And he said, hey, you know, dig the record. I'd like to release it. And I remember Matt and I were on vacation with family. And we were like corresponding back and forth with them. And I remember both of us being like, wait, he wants to release a record that we just gave to everybody for free. Um, and we we're like, yeah, I think so. But like, let's not, I mean, like, don't question it. Like, we don't want him to like change his mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, he, he, uh, you know, he graciously did, you know, put it out and release it. Um, and I do think that that gave it, um, where I think people were, were regarding it well, um, when it was just something you, you, that you could kind of download for free off the internet. And I mean, you could download it for free off the internet and something that we were really cognizant of was we didn't want it to just be this sort of like, um, you know, this thing where like you download the tunes and it's just like, make do and mend yeah yeah bodies of water mp4 and then it's just like went in a folder somewhere like when people downloaded it off the internet they downloaded it from our website and you got like a pdf with the liner notes you got like high res album art um like we worked like matt said we worked really hard we did we wanted it to be this sort of like presentation um and so um yeah, so Tim released it, and I think that that gave us a, a nice amount of, like, I don't know if validity is the right word, but it took it from being this thing that you just, you know, downloaded on the computer to being, like, you know, you could find it in a record store. You had this sort of, like, you know, um, albeit, you know, albeit very DIY um, and kind of, like, mom and pop, this sort of, like, record label, um, you know, validity there. Um so we did that and um when it came to so we did that tour with with shook ones and they were talking about you know paper and plastic and it was cool and Vinny, the guy who who runs paper and plastic um was a nice guy um and was do, really doing well by them and yeah i don't know maybe you guys have more insight but i think it was just like shook ones is cool um this record label sounds awesome you know and we were looking for somebody to do the next record and it kind of just you know as i as i think about it there were a couple as i remember it there were a couple things that got us really stoked about Mm. vinnie and paper and plastic so to the panic records at that point the the points that got us interested were like super simple being what are other bands that this label is like associated that with that we're into and like stoked on and so for tim 
a he was in trial which was a hardcore band that um we really loved and then they had put out um some set your goals records and at that point i I forgot about that set your goals was like an up-and-coming like cool pop punk band that we were super into um, we were like, oh shit, like we could be associated with a label that is also associated with these bands that we think are really cool. Um, and to to touch on James's point around panic and then printing bodies of water and bringing that digital experience into a physical reality, we also really wanted to make the physical product super cool. And so the the EP of Bodies of Water was a one-sided EP with the uh, B-side having a screen-printed logo yeah, yeah. on it. And we were always, just early on, we were like, we want to make the product mean something. We want to make it cool. Oh, let's so, go, uh, Kyle. I love it. Um, and so to Paper and Plastic and Vinny, I think he checked a bunch of boxes, not to make it transactional. I love it. Rad. Yeah, um, you know, there were bands that he was working with that we were super stoked on and into Shook One and Shook Ones being one of the predominant ones. Um, but Vinny was also really into making the records he released super unique. He always did like super interesting packaging, bundles. He was just like a really creative, unique dude, still is. And so when he came to us, it very much so was that. He was like, let's do something cool, different, rad. Um, and we we were just really into that. And then I think at that juncture of the band, we were starting to catch some steam and starting to think a little bit more around like, oh, shit, we, I think we can do this, do this as like a, a job, basically. Because I think before that, it wasn't even... It was an aspiration, but it wasn't really in the question. And then someone like Vinny getting in touch with us who had been working in music as his job for decades at that point yeah. had, you know, been obviously been in Less Than Jake, started Fueled by Ramen, um, had started this paper and plastic record, like just the inspiration and also insight that working with someone like Vinny at that point for us um, was like, shit, this could be pretty incredible. Um, and I think those were sort of like the key things that really got us stoked about um, working with Paper and Plastic for N Measure Mile. And looking retrospectively back on it, like all of those things were true yeah. and are true. Mm. And then do you remember how far along had you already began writing the record by the time paper and plastics on board? Did you have one done or were you like, was that kind of the push to be like, okay, let's crank out a full length now. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I want to say we started writing. We were just like always writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, At that point we were definitely always writing. We had at least like a couple tunes some of which ended up on the split that came out between Bodies and, and Measured Mile. But I think we had some demos kicking around for sure. I don't know if it was anything like worth showing to Vinny at that time, but we were just like, yeah, we got some songs for sure. I, if I remember correctly, we knew, 
we definitely knew we wanted to do an LP next. Mm, like definitely. at that point, we had done two EPs, and to Mikey's point, we were sort of always writing, and it was at that point geared towards all right. Now's the time for an LP. Nice. And at that time, when you're writing, are you? all writing together or does someone bring in riff ideas or does someone come in with a completed song and people add on to it? What was the process back then? Hmm. I think the process back then I did uh, hearing you say process is so cool. Um, <laughs> I think, I think the process back then, um, was, was very similar to the process always. Um, which was one thing that I always really valued about our songwriting was that it was like deeply collaborative. Um, we we're never the kind of band that like, there was one dude, you know, um, really kind of like, um, not doing all the work, but yeah, like one dude who was like kind of the main driver as far as the creative process goes. Like we were always, always all writing stuff, whether it's riffs, you know, whether it just be sort of structural things. Um, so very often, um, you know, it would start with either like I had something that I was sort of strumming around on on guitar and like put some words to um, or, you know, Mike, um, you know, Mike would come up with some sort of like structural kind of riff type stuff and we would jam out on that and, you know, turn it into something, um, you know, a little bit more concrete. Um, but yeah, and, and then and even through that process, like something that something that we something that we always did and i i value um is we like we hammered on songs like we like we worked out every little detail because we wanted them to be perfect um and i don't know if that's not what every band does i really have no insight into other people's process but like if if something made it on a make do and mend record down to like you know just the tiniest little like blip of noise we were like this is gonna go here for this reason you know it was very very well um kind of conceptualized um and i remember i remember going this is like fast forward a little bit and so i hope i don't like derail what we're talking about but we went and we sat down at a dude's house who when we were getting ready to do um, when we were getting ready to do the record after N Measured Mile, I think. I, I hope I have this right. Um, and we went and sat down at a dude's house who owned, like, a bigger record label. Like, you know, kind of one of the, like, one of the more sort of, like, I, I don't know, legacy sort of, like, big punk labels. Um, and he sat us down in his living room and he's like, he goes, your guys stuff is, is cool. He goes, but something that I've really noticed is like, you guys have written like a couple albums of like really great songs, but you don't have any good songs. And we're like, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's just like, if you're going to be, if your band's going to have any longevity, like you need to get better at writing good songs. Like not every song can be a great song. Like you need to write, you need to have an album with like a couple, two, three great songs and then, you know, fill it in with some okay songs. <laughs> and then that'll, you know, and I just remember sitting there and being like, I 
hate this. And like he <laughs> like he was probably right to be perfectly honest. I mean, the dude certainly and, and had 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 done it himself uh, very effectively. Um, but like I just remember sitting there and being like, "This sucks." Um, you know, we wanted every song to be a great song. Um, and, you know, whether or not we succeeded, who knows? Um, but that was always, you know, always on our mind. Um, you know, that's a, we wanted everything. That's like a frustrating piece of advice because, yeah, I have the same gut reaction. But then, like, a part of me from being in a band is like, I kind of also do understand what he's getting at. Mm-hmm. Where it's like uh, just getting lost in the details or when you're always going for greatness or you're going for this grand kind of thing, sometimes that makes missing on something hurt that much more. Like I've had projects where it's been like, you're going for a concept or something like that. And then you miss on one or two and you're like, fuck, if this was just like, if I had just put a six out of 10 in a song in this place, (laughs) maybe it would have glued this thing together a little better rather than having this, what I look back on for my own stuff as clearly this was a a miss this, this track. Mm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it's not even that I, it's not even that I like disagree or, um, or think that there's not something to that because I'm sure that there is, but it was just so counter that, that is so counter to sort of how we thought about playing music, both both recording music, writing and recording music, um, playing live, um, the sort of like physical and like artistic presentation of our music. We just wanted, like, we just wanted to put everything we had into it and when and when music not to get like kind of like philosophical but like when music becomes an economy that's when you have to start making those sort of like weird decisions you know if you're just if you're just making stuff in your basement um and recording it on your laptop and like releasing it on the internet for free you can you know murder yourself over the most minute detail um, it's, you know, it's when you're on deadlines and, and things like that, like this guy was saying, you know, you kind of gotta not cheapen it, but you, you have to start making those kind of decisions. And that was really, that was always really tough. I think for, I think that was always tough for me. And I think that was always tough for all of us. It's funny. Cause I, I think with everyone I've talked to, who's had like these kind of interactions with the label courting kind of process. It's it's always moments like those. It's never I haven't interviewed anyone who's been like, "Well, the budget was just so much better over here." We did. That. It's everyone's been like, "We had a gut check moment with this one that either was the confirmation of yes, we need to go this way or confirmation of no, we got to we got to just go somewhere else." But by that time, so you're with paper and plastic. Uh, do you remember what sort of budget you guys had to work with to do the full length? Had you ever had a budget before going into a recording? Or is always just on on your own dime? Yeah, a budget being however much money we could A, muster up, slash B, <laughs> convince people to record our songs for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember the budget. We definitely had a budget. Yeah. We definitely had a budget. Because I remember the only reason that I remember that we had a budget is we were super stoked to be able to just immediately 
give that to our dudes who yeah. recorded our our songs because honestly they had been doing it out of like friendship slash love for the band for a minute that's nick and nick and jay it, nick belmore yeah, and jay moss yeah that's, exa- okay. that's exactly right yeah okay. yeah and up until that point it was more up until and measured miles more nick than jay jay came into the fold um during Ed Measure a Mile. Uh, but I remember specifically with um, Nick Belmore at that point, like he had done so much for our band, um, both from like a recording perspective, a friendship perspective, um, for me personally, drums. And as soon as we were able to like get a budget, I was so stoked to like go to him and be like, dude, like we've got a budget. We can do this a little bit more formally. We can get you more money um and i so i don't remember what it was but i remember being stoked on it do you remember how long you guys took to record the album i think it was about a month right yeah yeah, yeah. i think yeah, that was, was always like 10 days at nikki's and like the rest of the month at jay's yeah yeah we did like a month was always sort of our like our magic number as far as like I don't think that we could write a we could record a record in less than a month. And that's I, I I hear stories about like you know older bands that we love and albums that we love and they're like, "Yeah, we recorded it in like 8 hours in a, you know, like and you know, they're these perfect they're these perfect records. Um but like again, t- you know, going back to the wanting everything to be perfect. I mean, we wanted to obsess over minutia that you know necessitated us having you know a, a long time in the studio um and so yeah nick you know so nick belmore had had recorded all of our stuff prior um i believe to that point and and um you know matt touched on it um matt touched on it and I'll, I'll elaborate on it just because i i have so much sort of like love and admiration for the dude um we would not we started recording stuff with Nick when we were like I mean like 15. Mike dude yeah like I was probably 15 or 16 13, yeah. and Mike was like 13 <laughs> yeah. and it was in you know he he had a studio in his parents basement um and I remember very vividly like going in and you know we'd have these songs these like little you know songs that we had written um and he'd be like, all right, cool, but like, this is a chorus. Like, this is how choruses work. And like, you wanna like, you wanna start the song kinda like, um, you know, you know, and you gradually build, and then you get to the chorus and you want it to just be, like, blow people's minds. And then you're gonna duck it back down, back into the verse, and then you're coming back. And like, you know, really sort of like, kinda taught us how to write songs. Um, and there's still stuff, there's still stuff that I like, if I'm, you know, if I'm, you know, doing music, even still today, you know, there's little stuff where I'm just like, oh, yep, dude, learn that from Nick. Like, I remember him telling me we were like, we would record guitars. Um, and he had a JCM 800, like a Marshall JCM 800, which is, I that's what I play and, and like the reason I have such an adoration for that amp. Um, and he was like, if you play in like any type of rock band, 
you the closest you can get your guitar to sound like ACDCs but back in black that's that's all you need <laughs> and I, I remember being like no way fuck that ACDC sucks like I don't want to yeah, sound yeah. like ACDC <laughs> and then I like listen back now and I'm like oh shit he's so right it, like right. as for right as far as like dialed rock tone goes you know the song I mean the songs are whatever but like um you know just so many little things that like there's no possible way we would have been in the band that we were um if it wasn't for you know his guidance so we as far as budget goes there's like a number bouncing around in my head but like you know that's kind of inconsequential like i think it was just the first time that like somebody was like hey don't worry about it like we'll pay for you to do your thing which like kyle as i'm sure you know there's a few like as sort of like as far as like punk band milestones go that's like a massive one like yeah huge you know like when you're not like um when you're not like when it's not all on your shoulders anymore that you know that's a that's a really nice feeling um and so we did drums and bass um at nick's um which was in new milford new milford 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 connecticut um and then i think just as far as geographics go um it just made sense to do the rest with moss um one he was a pal um and uh and two just like we all lived in boston at that time um and you know it was just a quick he his studio was i think in wakefield at that time which was like kind of like 30 minutes or so outside of the city um and so it just it just made for like that ability to just be there every day and just like and just kind of live essentially live there um and uh yeah yeah it was uh it was a really it was a really great experience you know recording the album i have a lot of fond memories both both sort of like harrowing and you know pleasant and exciting so anytime you go in the studio I'm, I'm sure people can probably guess it's exciting to get a record done but on an individual level for all three of you are you guys studio guys or is the studio kind of like oh, there's a little bit of like apprehension like oh I don't want to fuck this up or are you guys in there like this is what I love this is we can finally nail these songs the way they are in my head how do you feel going into especially at this time going into your first full length it's a good question. What do you guys think? What are you? Where do you guys land on the spectrum? I definitely loved the studio. Like I loved fucking around, um, especially just with like the guitar stuff we were doing. You know, being able to mess with pedals and like I remember that like intro feedback on this album was like us putting a shitty guitar in Jay's dryer and like running <laughs> in, like getting like you know just like weird, fun, creative ideas that we you know wouldn't have been able to do in a live setting, but it was fun to just mess around with in the studio. Um, that was definitely always my, my like favorite part of being in a band. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, as you were talking about the process, James, um, in terms of wanting everything to be like down to a T perfect, I was also just thinking about, we all collectively just really loved the process of recording albums because we didn't 
we didn't think of it as um, just taking the songs that existed and having someone put mics on our instruments and capturing the song. We, it was totally. a new phase of building for us. And so we really, we wanted to take a month because we wanted to fuck around and try different things and explore layers different and, yeah. layers and directions that could bring the song to a new level within the studio. And that, as I think back on all the time that we spend, we recorded a good amount of music um, for the, the time that we were active. And I think it was, you know, in part because we all just loved the process of like getting in the studio and sort of bringing the songs to its, at least to that point, their final form. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely really always loved, loved that process. Like with the, uh, Speaking on that a little bit, you have I, I think it's in fire firewater, the string section comes in and the horns and the brass and stuff like that. Are you guys going into the studio being like, We need to try that? Or is the song starting to come together and someone goes, Shit, I can hear this part. Uh, you know, let's try it. We've got a month, let's do it, we got a budget. Or, or and who do you bring in for that kind of stuff, or is that a virtual instrument type of thing? I can't remember who played strings on on a measured mile. So Tim Casey did violin. Okay, right. Um, and then this dude, Orion, that I went to college with, played cello. And oh, I yeah. remember I got in a car accident on the way home, like driving him <laughs> home from the studio. <laughs> <laughs> the strings, what's, sorry, go for it, Matt. I was just going to say, I don't, I don't think we had it planned when we wrote that song to have strings in that bridge, James, you'd be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it plays back Kyle to what I was saying around just being super into using the time in a studio to add new, different, cool elements to a song that can help enhance it past what it, what it was. And so we were always, from pretty early on into the idea of trying different instrumentation on our records. And I think strings specifically, we always loved um, punk and like rock and roll songs that implemented uh, string instrumentation. We just thought it sounded like super cool and beautiful. Um, and I, I, I would be interested, James, if you remember like the moment that we decided we wanted strings in that firewater bridge. I don't know if I remember like, um, an exact sort of like, as far as that, um, that particular bridge goes, but I think that a lot of our songwriting one, like Matt touched on, you know, something that we were always obsessed with was song craft on the whole. And I think that that was inspired by um, working with Nick Belmore, um, you know, from an early, because he taught us so much about like, when you hear a song, you know, you hear the, the guitar and the drums and the vocals, but like listening to a song and hearing all the depth and the layers of like, you know, what else is going on. Um, and I still love that. I still love putting on a record that I've listened to a thousand times, you know, 
that's been a favorite for you know 20 years um and find you know hearing like a, a you know a you know a piano or a fucking like you know triangle like like a ting or something like that and you go oh my god like you know i'd love that shit so that was always something that was very heavy on our minds and i think that we wanted to be like i think that we wanted to be like a punk rock band like we somehow wanted to be like i don't know we somehow wanted to be like a hardcore band and like the fucking Goo Goo Dolls, like, you know, just like, you know, somehow some like weird, like mutation of those two things. Um, and so like always loved string arrangement, always loved, um, on Firewater in particular, we have, dude, this is wild. Um, Sid, uh, Mike's wife sings, there's like a, there's like a female, um, vocal track, kind of like a harmony on that bridge. Um, yeah, and it's Sydney, Mike's wife. Um, and like, we just loved all those little things that like bands, not to say that we were like, you know, that this was like groundbreaking in any way. Um, but like bands of our ilk weren't doing, um, you know, and, that was just something that we always really valued. So I, that was, we were always listening for like, could we throw strings here? Cause I mean, like, you know, take like, um, I'm, I'm, I mentioned Goo Goo Dolls and it was totally by accident, but I mean, dude, take the bridge to like Iris when they do that, like the fucking instrumental bridge is longer. Totally legendary, right? The bridge is longer than the whole rest of the song. Um, and like, you know, so it was shit like that where it's just like, you know, strings on a bridge is, is legendary. Um, and we were always, we had, you know, we had this kind of like, um, we kind of had this like big rock checklist that we would always be like looking to sort of like check things off of. And like anytime we would do something that was like big rock in nature, we'd be like, yep, nailed it. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was definitely one of the. Yeah, it was super big rock. It was like out of tune cellos and <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. violins in a dingy ass basement next to a yeah. running washing machine. Mm -hmm. It was uh, a yeah, very big rock. Big rock. Um, when you're in the studio kind of watching these songs come together, you sounded like you were pretty meticulous in the writing process and planning and stuff, but was there any of the 10 songs on the album where maybe surprised you a little bit either way, one where you thought going in, Hey, this is a single and maybe it didn't quite capture it or the opposite way where you're like, ah, maybe we cut this one. And then once you start laying it down, you hear those extra things, maybe what someone else is doing and go, oh shit, this song is way better than I, they, I had truly given it credit for. That's interesting. That's a good question. Um, hmm. I mean, songs definitely do that in the studio. Um, songs that you didn't necessarily, um, didn't necessarily stand, stand out in the writing process. Um, you'll chuck a, you know, you'll chuck a, a lead over something and you're like, Ooh, that's a, you know, that's a cool part. This is, you know, this song has a character to it that you didn't necessarily recognize before. Um, one thing that, uh, that was sort of definitely like a studio conceptualization was, um, the, 
halfway through the album, um, there's a song called um, For a Dreamer. And then the last song uh, on the album is a, is a song called Night's the Only Time of Day. Um, and so the two songs, I think that we had written Night's the Only Time of Day and like knew that it would be the last song on the record. Um, but we sort of conceptualized this like middle track that kind of marks like the fact that you're halfway through the album that has, um, you know, similar, similar lyrics and a similar sort of structure to the first bit of Night's the Only Time of Day. Um, and it kind of like, we've always, we were also always obsessed with like an album as a whole. Um, you know, we always wanted to write a, you know, a, a, you know, a fully realized piece of, you know, 10, 11, 12 songs, whatever. Um, and the idea that like, you're listening to it, you might be listening to it, you know, on side A and a side B. Um, so, you know, this for a dreamer would be the last song on side A. Um, and that was something that I think that we put together, like kind of in the studio. I don't think that was really, um, fleshed before, you know, before we were there. Yeah, totally. And I, it's funny that you mentioned those two songs because the one that immediately came to mind was Night's the Only Time of Day. Um, as I think back on that record and I look at the, the track list, that song super sticks out to me. And I remember, I remember loving the song going into the studio, but it, it realized itself in the studio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think distinctively the tone of the guitar, um, in the beginning of the song where it's, it's just one guitar and, yeah. and James, yeah. Like the way that that tone came to life, um, was pretty unbelievable. And then the size of the chorus, those are like the two things that I think of, um, that really stand out about that song. And the cool thing is I think we were able to carry both of those things forward into when we played the song live. Like, as I think about the song on the record and then I think about when we play that song live, the tone of the guitar in the beginning and the size of the chorus, um, just like honestly give me chills thinking about it. Did you have now? Did you already know the record was going to be called End Measure Mile" when you had that for the course, or or did they? What came first? That's a good question. Um, I th- to be perfectly honest, I think that the name I think the name of the album came first, um, or just the just the like um, just the kind of phrase "End Measured Mile." um, had been like bouncing around in my head for quite a while. And so I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever seen this Kyle, but like sometimes on American highways, um, you'll see signs on the side of the highway. Um, and the first sign will say like measured mile begins. And then you'll a mile down the road, there'll be another sign that says end measured mile. And I don't know what they use them for. I think they use them for like I don't know. I honestly have no clue, you know, Um, checks maybe. Yeah. That sounds right. Like if, yeah, if you, you know, make sure that your speedometer is working right or something like that. 
Um, but I remember seeing those signs and being like, and like it just the for some reason those three words together just had like such a nice like a very satisfying kind of ring to them and measured mile. Um, and then you know the more I thought about it, the more I sort of like just started conceptualizing this like idea that like when you're playing in a band and just in life in general we're always being evaluated either by ourselves or by our peers or sort of like outside entities and we feel as though everything's under a microscope um and you know i both in our music and in my life in general i would like to live separate from that type of like analysis and criticism whether it be self-imposed or otherwise um and so in that time where you're watching um you're watching other bands you know either do better or get other opportunities and um you know there's so many weird strange um inner workings of the sort of like mechanism that is the economy of music um now again not to go back and sound too too philosophical but there's just so many little things that, you know, make playing in a band um, more than, you know, more than just playing tunes with your friends. Um, and those were always the things that I found the most um, displeasurable about playing in a band. And so, you know, that, that sort of phrase in my mind, end measured mile, like, this is where we stop this is where we sort of separate ourselves from this sort of like um you know rat racy kind of you know um that uh, feeling of this experience as it can sometimes be um so you know the line on the in the song goes uh and measured mile uh there was a last stand feeling oh geez this is the worst. I'm on this. Oh, comfort and screaming. Yeah, yeah. This is the last feeling. Comfort and screaming. And it's like, you know, fuck all the rest of it. What it's about is playing tunes. Is just getting up there and banging your head and yelling and, you know, hitting the drums and, um, you know. And every, I would, I would imagine every band, especially when it becomes, you know, a career in a sense, wrestles with that, um, how do we keep it pure? How do we keep it just about being friends and playing music um, and not get caught up in this sort of like in the machine of it? Um, and, you know, we as a band succeeded and failed at that um, in many different ways. Um, but the yeah, that that sort of phrase and measured mile was sort of just a um, the, probably the first recognition of um you know those feelings and wanting to wanting to sort of like exist above the bullshit in a sense um and that you know that that guided for better or for worse that guided a lot of the decisions that we made as a band um through you know from the beginning we always wanted to be doing our own thing um we never you know when people you know, people would sign to certain labels or people would work with certain producers or, you know, people would do certain tours. And we just wanted to, like, one of our biggest fears was some, 
somebody going like, oh, MDAM did that. Yeah, I mean, this other band did that. Like, whatever. Like, we wanted to be our own thing. Um, and, you know, going back to song structure and some of the decisions we made um, in the studio and some of our artistic choices, you know, I think if they didn't, if they didn't reflect that to the, you know, to folks on the outside, they were at least um, reflective of that, you know, to us personally. Did you guys do either of the three? You remember feeling any external or self-imposed pressure going into recording this album, or was it more like, "Hey, we've got the label, we've got a budget, we're doing it with our friends, we got the songs, this is going to be cool, it doesn't really matter," or was there kind of a little bit of like, hey, we're taking a swing at this, the the pressure's on. That's a good question. I want these guys to answer so I don't dominate. I think to what Matt said earlier, we were kind of, this was like kind of the first time where we were like, oh, like this could be our job. Like we, if we do a good job here, then we get to keep doing it. So the pressure was like less, I don't know, external and more just like we can keep doing this if we crush it so i think that was just our motivator to do the best job that we could and obviously like wanting to make something excellent as well um i think that was the biggest driver but i don't think there was a ton of pressure from the label like Vinny was Vinny didn't care he was just like yeah you guys are sick whatever <laughs> um we didn't have like a manager at the time we didn't have you know I think we were like starting to talk to like a booking agent, but we didn't really have one at the time. And it was just kind of like, yeah, let's just keep making good stuff and hope that brings in more opportunity, I guess. Did you? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you, you nailed it, Mikey. I was just going to say, Kyle, as I think back on like the time of like going into that record, it did feel like probably the last recording moment that didn't have that like outsized outside pressure from like the label the people who liked our band because at that point we were like catching steam but still on a grander scale no one really knew who we were or gave a shit and so um i think any pressure was self-imposed around this is our first lp Right. Like we had recorded two EPs. Um, this is like a big fucking deal in terms of recording an LP. We've got to make this something special. Um, and so as I think about like the pressures that were on us at that point, they like they feel good. They were like good pressures as opposed to like the bullshit outside external pressures. And just looking through the liner notes here, is this turnaround correct? You recorded this the summer of 2010, and then it's out October 26th, that same year? Yeah, we, we, had, we left on a U.S. tour, like, pretty much right after finishing the album. Um, so, yeah, that, that sounds right. That would have been the summer of 2010, and then we, you know, and then we booked it. Um, so, yeah, I guess it was a pretty quick turnaround. 
Yeah, just thinking now with like vinyl delays and stuff. Like I remember back then thinking were vinyl delays were bad, and then, and then mm. now it's like fourteen months, pretty much. Is it really? Yeah, it's, 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 oh my god, it's unreal. There were vinyl delays at the time too, and I remember they were like a month and a half or something like that, and we thought it was the worst thing ever. We yeah. were so like embarrassed. Well, you got the tours like, booked and everything. Like, yeah, yeah. And, but the and I mean to... the album came out, the digital oh, totally. CD. But we had we had to wait story. on the we had to wait on the vinyl and I almost feel as though I don't think we had vinyl. We did like a record release show and I think that we did not have vinyl for the record release show, which was not um you know, that was kind of par for the course for like, you know, bands at that time. Like something would always like get fucked up. But um but Vinny, for all of his strengths, and this I think probably was one of his strengths too, in a sense was so laissez-faire about everything <laughs> everything and so yeah i remember the vinyl being backed up and we had done um we had done a pre-order um through some sort of like distribution company some sort of small distribution company um and people had pre-ordered the album and the the date kept on getting pushed back um for when people could kind of expect it. And the guy who owned um uh the guy who owned the distribution company also played in a band. I won't name the band although I want to so bad. Um <laughs> also played in a band and had got and kind of gotten fed up and I saw email correspondences in in between him and, and Vinny Fiorello who did paper and plastic where this dude's like, dude, I have all these people's money I keep on telling them that the Make Do and Mend record is going to be coming out. When is the Make Do and Mend record going to be like ready? And Vinny would be like, "Yeah, man, it'll be it'll be there, <laughs> something like that. It'll they'll get it." Um, and the dude was finally he got fed up with Vinny and was like, "You know what? I'm washing my hands of this," and refunded everybody who um, had pre-ordered the mm, album through his I distribution company. And at the time, yeah, yeah, I was so mad. Um, and at the time, and I mean, this, you know, just sort of um, solidifies how you hyperanalyze every little thing when you're, you know, when you're in the moment. I was convinced we had, you know, we had pre-ordered all these records. And, and at that time, it was sort of, it was like, an, it was a mind-blowing amount. Like, um, I think that, you know... I want to say it was like close to like 2000 people or something like that had like pre-ordered the album, which was like mind blowing. Um, and they all got refunded. And I was like, this is it. This is the end of our band. <laughs> like yeah. we just, you know, we just pre-sold like close to 2000 records. They all got refunded. And, you know, none of those people are going to, you know, rebuy our record. Um, people online actually, are hitting us up. Like, where the fuck is my record? Totally. Blah, blah. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. Like, and so we don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Miracu miraculously, you know, um, we were able to keep, we were able to recover from that, that crushing moment. I remember that chaos because if you got in the first 300, you got this like die cut. Yep. Yeah, special mm -hmm. one that opened up, and then it was die cut again in the center with the logo exactly. and, and the records in there. Like, yeah. and I remember like snack because this is a time when like you know. No sleep and all those labels are doing paper and plastic. They're all doing these special, like limited. So, like, as a fan, you're like, I gotta get that one, no matter. And totally. then I remember like all the chaos, being like, 
oh, I just got a refund. What the fuck? How do I get? Like, I got in the first 300. I need to get back in. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I actually even forget, like, what the question was. But that was, you know, that was a trip. Yeah. And so in that time in between, you finish the record. You basically leave for a tour right away. You have these vinyl delays. But from my internet research here it looks like you did about 113 shows in 2011 and then another 95 in 2012 which is essentially the the cycle for this album was that all you guys were focused on at this time just hitting this touring cycle as hard as possible yeah yeah just gigging um and i i as much as we loved being in the studio and enjoyed creating music I, maybe I can only speak for myself um, on this one, but like to me, the end all be all was playing live. Um, like that, it, it, Kyle, as I'm sure you can sort of substantiate, uh, there's no better feeling. Like, you know, just getting up there and, and playing the tunes. Um, and if, you know, if, especially if people are psyched to watch you play the tunes um that's what it was all about like you know i just wanted to bang my head um and so um yeah th that was i think that was definitely our our main focus and and what was cool about you know putting out the record was um talking you know when we were talking about how things were very organically just kind of like you know gaining steam from there it was putting out this record that allowed us to do a lot of you know some of the most memorable touring um that we got to do in a band um you know that was uh that was you know we went to uh we went to europe with hot water music um we d we did um we did a couple really just like australia memorable. too in this run that's when we went to Australia for the first time. Yep, which was unreal. Um, that was a wild experience. Um, and yeah, so I mean, this yeah, this was kind of the you touched on it at the beginning of of our chat. Like, this was sort of the like powder keg. Um, you know, if our band had one, this was kind of the powder keg moment. Yeah, it was the first time we had a booking agent as well. Mm -hmm. um, I remember um, one of the memories that popped up was we had sent the record before it came out to um, these two booking agents, Matt Pike and Merrick, um, because they were starting to represent like a few of our friends' bands who were doing well, but more so like actively touring. And so we were like, man, it would be such like a dream if we could get these guys to to book our band as well. And I remember distinctly uh, sending us, we either handed it to them. No, no, we handed it to them at a show back to like the physical world, which is now, mm. you know, well dead. I remember going up to, I think, Pike at some show and just like nervously introducing myself I'd be like, hey, dude, like, my name is Matt. I play in a band called Make Two and Bend. I was like, we just, we just recorded this album. Um, I have, like, a CD, like, would love for you to 
to take a listen to it. Um, I remember in the following two weeks hounding Pike and Merrick's last FMs. Do you guys remember last FM? <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. See what they had listened to. Because <laughs> you, you like had it plugged into what you listened to, and I would just I was hounding their last FM. I was being like, when are they gonna fucking listen to the album? <laughs> you know. And I remember the day that I saw End Measured Mile come through. I was like over the moon. I was like, holy wow. shit, they're listening to it. And then I remember they listened to the whole thing. And for mm. me, when I saw that they listened to it end to end, I was mm. like, okay, this means something. And then I think in like the following week, they hit us back and they were like, we would love to to rep you guys. Um, and that that was that. And I think partnering up with them at that point was what helped us the following two years be on the road as much as we possibly could, which yeah. was, that was it, right? It was like, just, it wasn't calculated. It wasn't like get on these tours with these bands. It was put out the record and be on the road as much as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Do you, do either of you remember uh, the reception? So the record drops in October, you're, in the midst of touring, you're kind of focused on that. Do you remember online or do the shows start to change when this record drops? And do you remember any any feedback from this at that time? It seemed, digging through old reviews and stuff, it seemed largely positive. Yeah, I remember, I remember the record was well-received. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that it was, I think that it was largely positive. Um, but I, I, you know, my memory for like exactitudes of this kind of stuff, um, isn't great. So I, I really don't have many memories of like people raving about it necessarily. Um, but like, yeah, I think generally speaking, people did like it. And I, you know, I remember people coming to see us live and uh, and enjoying this sort of like intensity of the live show. Um, like I, I think that that was something that we always strove for to like really kind of really kind of bring it like in the live setting, um, kind of leave it all out there uh, in a sense. And so I think that you know if people dug the record, um, you know, I think I, I hope that we did a nice job of, of representing it um, in the live setting, because like Matt said, I mean, at that time, we just wanted to all we wanted to do was play shows. I mean, coming up to so that, you know, we we did the we did the record that summer, the summer of 2010. And um, I sublet my apartment we were matt and i were living in a four-bedroom apartment with like seven of our friends in this four-bedroom apartment like mike poolin who played bass on ed measured mile um was living in like the closet um alex merchant who would do a lot of like touring with us over the you know over the coming years um him and matt shared a bedroom um and so i sublet my room in the apartment um while we were for like a couple months that I was on tour so that I didn't have to pay rent to like this 
to this like kind of weird guy who was sort of like a friend of a friend. Um, and so he needed to be in like he needed to be in like a month before we left for tour. Um, and this was while we were sort of like hammering out the finalities of recording and measured mile. Um, so we, I was living in our practice space. We had this practice space in like Charlestown, Mass. I was living in our practice space and like every night Matt and Mike would come from the city to Charlestown and we would play and like, can, like work on writing the record and then they would leave and I'd be left in this like practice space room. And it was like such a dark, weird period because I remember like they'd like, they'd leave and they'd be like, all right, dude, like, see you later. <laughs> and then I would just like, I would walk around like the streets of Charlestown, like late at night, which like, if you've seen the movie, The Town starring Ben Affleck, you know, that's like <laughs> yeah. not the, the best idea. Um, and then I would just, you know, I was just in this room all by myself, no windows, um, just working on finishing, um, you know, the songs for this record. Um, and so it was just this, like, everything, everything, every part of life was to serve the, you know, the greater good of, of gigging. Um, and so, yeah. I was just going to say, it definitely changed the trajectory of the band in terms of, um, but it was always just enabling our ability to stay on the road um, and just keep doing this. Because at that point, it was like, as I alluded to earlier, it was like, okay, we think we can do this. Now we're doing this. And now, like, what can we do to figure out how to keep doing this? Mm -hmm. uh, but I do have two... Um, distinct memories that stick with me to the day. Um, one of which being, I am the avalanche at that point invited us to come play a gig. I think it was in Brooklyn or Lower East Side. I forget. It was somewhere in New York City. Um, and at that point, especially for James and I, Vinny Caruana from I am the avalanche was like a hero. The Movie Life was one of our all-time favorite bands. And the fact that we had gained enough notoriety to have Vinny's band invite us to come play a New York City gig was such, like, a monumental moment. Then on top of that, I remember loading in, and we didn't know any of the dudes, but Vinny, like, came up to me, and he was like, hey, man, you guys made a great record on Ed Measured Mile. And he like proactively came up and said this to me. And it seriously was like this life changing moment because I was like, here's this guy who from my like young years was truly a hero. His band's music changed my life is coming up to me and telling me that we made a great record. And for me, that was like, I was like, we made it. I was like, mm -hmm. man, I don't give a shit about anything else. Vinny Caruana just came up to me, has clearly listened to and loved our record and told me it was great. And that was just, that was it. Dude, and those were our metrics. Like, and, and you know, kind of to me still are. Like, 
that's what meant the most to me. We wanted to play as many shows as humanly possible because that's what our predecessors, who we adored, did. Like, the bands that we loved recorded music and toured, and toured as much as humanly possible until the fucking wheels fell off. Um, and then those little sort of, like, affirmation getting those affirmations from people who were heroes in a sense was like to me is still the end all be all i've got i've got a story to that similar effect but i want mike do you remember um your dan yemen encounter at fest oh dude yeah totally yeah, yeah. this that is such was a good like story the, was that the fest like right after the album came out like a couple days it must have yeah. been yeah yeah I was walking around. I forget who I was walking around with. I think it was um, Rory from Soul Control. And he knew Dan Yemen, and I had never met him before. And we just, like, walked up to him, and they said, what's up? And when he pulled out his – he was, like, walking around the street with earbuds in. And Ro- I think it was Rory. I hope I hope I have the story right. But um, introduced me. He was like, my, this is Mike from this band, Make Do and Mend. And Dan Yemen was like, oh, dude, I'm, like, listening to your new album right now. And I was oh, just like, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was so cool. He's like, yeah, it sounds awesome. You guys are great. And yeah, I, we didn't stay in like super close touch with him after that, but I was like, fuck yeah, this is sick. Mm. I, mean, I think it was that the same. Relating to dudes like that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And then we were in, we met, a, there was a dude who I came in contact with. I'm not sure in what capacity, but he worked for alkaline trio he was like a he was like a crew guy for alkaline trio and i don't know whether maybe we were like on a festival that alkaline trio played or maybe he was like working for somebody else while like while alkaline trio was in the studio um i think the dude's name was matt um and we were chatting you know at at some gig somewhere and we, we we met and he was like oh dude nice to meet you i you know i really love i really love y'all's new record um chuck gave it to me um and like and like highly recommended it and like i was i remember thinking like chuck who like i don't like i don't know anybody i don't think personally named chuck Uh, i go oh that's cool chuck who and he goes chuck reagan and i'm like it like in my brain couldn't even calculate like my brain didn't just jump to like oh of course chuck reagan you know dug the record so much so that he like you know recommended it to this friend of his um you know it was just stuff like that like that to me is still uh, you know um however many records got sold however many you know tours we did whatever those to me are the monument the most monumental memories of like what making music really meant that and and getting to interact personally with people who um and just yeah what you know whether it be dudes from cool bands that we adored or just you know folks in general people who understood and and enjoyed the music that's you know that's that's kind of it that's the end all be all for me when when you're coming out of this touring cycle, uh, where does Rise Records come in here? Now, we, we have the Chuck connection, because I kind of remember the day when it was like, Hot Water Music is back, and it's coming out on Rise Records, and I was like, what the fuck is Rise Records? What? And then and then it seemed to be like a rapid-fire series of just all these bands that I loved were signing to Rise. When did Rise c- kind of connect with you guys? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, and these guys might have more sort of like specificity um, here, but so it was in the time where, right, we had put out Unmeasured Mile. We did the sort of like album cycle and, and you know, it looked like it was going really, really well. Um, and, you know, the the wisdom of the time was like, okay, paper and plastic, sick DIY label. Um, but if we want to take things to the, like the next level of doing this professionally, we kind of need to be on a label that has the wherewithal either from like a distribution perspective or an advertising perspective or a just, you know, finances perspective to kind of like facilitate that trajectory, which like whether or not that was ill-conceived, you know, who knows. Um, but so that was, you know, that's when we started thinking about, you know, putting out the next record with somebody who wasn't paper and plastic, who had a little bit more of that sort of like industrial wherewithal. Um, and so that's where like going back to the story of like having lunch at the dude's house where he told us that we sucked. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, and just like stuff too many like great that. Songs. You just had too, too, many, great too much songs. great shit. It was horrible. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we were at, I think we were at, we were playing at Crazy Fest in Kentucky. I think, I, I think I've got this right. We were playing at Crazy Fest in Kentucky. They had done one year sort of like a revival of Crazy Fest, which we played and it was like, I have such great memories of that fest because it was like against me, hot water music, seven seconds, uh, small brown bike. I think the casket lottery played like, um, but so yeah, um, so we were playing that festival um, and we had just started working um, with who would become, you know, our manager for the duration of, of our playing days, this woman, Evangelina Levanos. Um, and um, she sat us down. We went out for Chinese food. Um, and she sat us down and she was like, okay, guys, so like I've been in contact with all these different labels. We kind of have this handful of them that um, are showing, you know, prospective interest. Um, you know, there's this one, this one, this one, this one. And she goes, one that I know that you guys aren't going to be thrilled about necessarily. Um, but I really do think that you should keep in mind is Rise Records. And to that point, they really hadn't, I don't know that they had done Hot Water yet. Maybe they had. Um, but to that point, I mean, they were very well known for like, um, kind of like Screamo, you know, kind of like, yeah, um, like attack, attack, and like, you know, kind of shit like that. It was just like, where did you even pull that name out of your That's the only, for some, I'm like trying to like rack my brain. That's the only name that like I remember. Um, and I don't remember anything about them other than the band, the band name. Um, and so I remember I had like, I had a mouthful of food. I had just put like a bite of food in my mouth. And she goes, you know, I really think that you guys should consider Rise Records. And I go like, fucker, absolutely, absolutely not. Like, just like mouthful of like, you know, Chinese sort of I'm like, fucker, no, no, no. Um, and she's like, I know, but like, just talk to them. Like, you know, we can... 
Um, and then I think, you know, on, yeah, I don't remember how it sort of like crystallized from there. But what I do remember was, um, you know, we, we, we spoke with a bunch of different people on that touring cycle, wherever, wherever other labels happened to be located in the country, the dude representing that label would come out to the gig. Um, and we met a, a ton of different people and all the, you know, all the meetings were fine. Um, you know, but it, it all, it always felt very much like, this sounds like so weird and like, you know, kind of like, it, it never felt like anybody really got it. You know, like you'd have just the label dude who's like, hey, songs are good. You guys are going to be huge. We're going to put you on tour with this band and this band. And you guys are going to be the next this band. Um, and I remember Rise being the first guys that we met at that time. It was a dude named Matthew. Um, a dude named Sean Haydorn, and then, um, guys, who, who owned the label? Craig. Um, it was three guys, and I just remember them being the most down-to-earth out of all of the rest of, you know, the rest of the dudes we met. They were like, listen, we've got, you know, we've got the finances, we have the infrastructure, you guys have the music, and we sort of just want to be facilitators for your vision in a sense so like you guys say how it goes and we are your guys's supporters um you know in that vision um and i remember being like kind of blown away that they were the only ones out of the you know the sort of crop of of people that were interested that we've got that sort of very organic feeling from um and so that you know that kind of made the the decision for us um and matt and like i'd be Definitely interested to hear if you have any other insight there. Yeah, totally. I think it also, you know, is an interesting time in general because there was this crop of bands who were all at like the same moment of their trajectory, which was like going from a local band that started to catch steam to becoming a band that was touring the country and catching steam on that level and just being ready to like sign their first like bigger like record deals or whatever it may be. And so there were all of our peers around us were at the same moment and they were all signing to the prototypical labels. Um, your run for covers, your bridge nines, your um, side ones and for whatever reason, and I think it just went back to the way we wanted to go about it. We just, we didn't want to do the same thing as our peers. We wanted to take our own path and sort of create a distinctive um, trajectory. And I think that definitely played into one of the reasons why we, we went with Rise on top of what James um, said, because all of our friends and our peers were going this way. And we're like, cool, that's that's awesome. Like that obviously still all love and adoration. Let's zag a little bit. Let's let's go our own way. Um, and yeah, that definitely played into it as well. 
was it easy to get everyone on board just from that meeting or did any of you kind of think in the back of your mind like oh shit maybe this label is, is the one or were you all after that meeting all kind of like hey this is the one where that I think is is working for all of us I don't remember there being any kind of like um, discord to that end there definitely was I mean like just being super candid and and honest about it there was certainly deep discussion around the overall um persona of that label right like mm -hmm. james mm -hmm. spoke to fucking attack attack or whatever it was but like in no way shape or form were we um into the general profile or bands that this label had been putting out um but i think again it just it went back to it just being something different to us. Like it was more about the people and the way that they sort of presented the opportunity and enabling us to just keep doing our thing and then supporting us, um, you know, with their infrastructure, et cetera. Like that was more important to us than like the coolness of their label. And I think it went back to like all of our peers were signing with these like quote unquote cool labels when we didn't really give a shit. We were just like, we just want to make music and tour and get it out to as many people as possible. And quite frankly, I think in retrospect, probably a little naive on our parts, right? Like we were like, we don't care about the persona of this label, but people did, right? Like. Mm -hmm. more broadly like the people who liked our band the broader industry when we made that decision it certainly changed the way that certain people looked at our band because we were now associated with this label that had a bunch of like you know bands that um had a, a an image and and persona whatever and so i think you know while it wasn't a huge rub for us it was probably a little naive of us not to think through like, what are the implications more broadly here? And how is this going to right or wrong change people's perspective on the intentionality of our band? Um, so it's funny. It's just funny to sort of like retrospectively think about that. Did you guys have people around you at the time, other bands who kind of were mentors to you? whether that's the business side or just when you start ramping up the touring, were there ever, like the Menzingers talked about connecting with the Bouncing Souls and the Bouncing Souls really taking them under being like, hey, you're, you, we remember this time. Watch out for this, this, and this. Did you guys have any bands around you, Boston area like that? Boston area, not so much, I don't think. Um, but, I mean, Hot Water was definitely, definitely one of those bands. Um, and then just like any of the bands that we got to tour with who had already, you know, kind of like done their time, uh, like, you know, really, like really on the road. Um, and, and I don't know how it is anymore, um, uh, because I'm very much unplugged from like the modern, you know, kind of like punk or, or whatever it is now music scene. Um, but there was like a. I don't know, like, you know, let's, I, you know, Kyle, I know you're a huge hockey fan as, as are Matt and myself, like the idea of like, you know, being rookies on your first NHL team and having like, you know, the veterans in the locker room that sort of like 
show you how it's done. Um, and that was, you know, that was Hot Water Music for sure. Um, that was Vinny, you know, who had played in the movie Life and, and then played in I Am the Avalanche. You know, had those sort of like, um, you know, those sort of like, was able, were able to guide us, you know, in those, in those times for sure. Perfect. And then looking back now at, at, at your discography, you did... 2012, everything you ever loved. 2015, don't be long. Looking back at end measured mile in that, uh, not as in like a a ranking type thing, like what's your favorite album from the time, but just looking at that stretch of time where you have these three full lengths in five years and, and the tour cycles that came with it and then eventually the stopping of playing. You guys haven't played a show since... 2016 when you look at this time and measured miles specifically can you look back at that with with happiness do you think is it more nostalgic or is it like hey we hit this we really went for it we went hard for these couple years was this a good time versus some of the times where maybe it got a little bit shittier maybe towards the end when you kind of have to make that decisions between are we doing real life or are we doing this? Cause this is kind of like right at that time where it's like, ah, you can still get away with kind of living with seven guys in a four bedroom apartment type deal. <laughs> when you got to what would be the end of the band where is there any, I know with some stuff I've released some time, it's like the time around it kind of discolors the releases or stuff like that. Or it kind of brings it down. How do you feel reflecting on this time? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. Um, where I, I think that was the last time, and I think Matt said something to this effect earlier, but like that was the last time that it was that what we were doing was really kind of unfettered by any other sort of like outside frustration like um and that's not to say that it was the the best time uh you know of the band necessarily but that was the last time that that was probably the like if there's some sort of like weird graph between like simplicity and success like that's probably where those two lines kind of like intersected um where like we did a ton of cool shit after you know in those years following and measured mile um arguably some of the coolest shit of our playing career um but you're right you know after that you know different frustrations certainly came along with you know that trajectory so you know to that end yeah it, it was definitely the simplest time um of playing in a band but when i look back now as like an older dude in retrospect, I don't look back on any of the, any of our experiences playing in the band as a sort of like negative time. You know, I recognize little frustrations here and there that sort of like, you know, kind of part, like are just sort of like part of the journey. Um, but I definitely don't, you know, there was no time playing in the band that was a bad time in a sense if that makes any sense yeah 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 i mean i think i'll echo that it was i've been trying to come up with like more astute words 
but it was it was a special moment in time. And I think there are so many variables that go into that, like um, it being um, pre uh, the time period where we had a manager, we had a booking agent. This was like our quote unquote jobs and careers. Um, we were just for the first time more broadly um, having people like our band. Uh, we had a core set of peers around us who were making cool music and playing shows and being able to experience all of these things for the first time. And so definitely like those variables play into that being like super special moment in time, no doubt. And so I, to James's point, it's no better or worse than other moments in the, the band's timeline, but it certainly is unique and special, no doubt, because we were starting to experience a lot of these things for the very first time. And just to close out here, if, if everyone from the, either from this period or the time with the band, where there was one kind of moment where it would clicked, where either a tour or just the recording time together, stuff like that. What What's like the fondest memory? Someone says, make do and mend your best time you had playing in that band. What's the first thing that comes to the mind for each of you? Um, I mean, my favorite stuff was always, I mean, like, I, you know, my favorite stuff was always like the hijinks and like friendships and sort of like moments because, I mean, when you're playing in a band, the functionality of your job is the, like, you know, like, 45 minutes or whatever that you're, like, on stage every night. And then there's 23 hours and 15 minutes of the rest of the day that you're, like, not doing that. So there's so, there's far much there's far more time where you're, like, not being a band than you are, you know, being a band for those 45 minutes. And so, like, to me, that was always my favorite. Like, my, all my favorite stuff. I mean, I, there's a bunch, there's a ton of standout gigs and, like, a, you know, standout moments. But my favorite stuff is always the memories that we made in those other 23 hours and 15 minutes. Um, where, like, so, like, and I, we've got a gajillion of these stories that could be, like, a whole different podcast. But, like, a friend of ours, our friend Jimmy Walsh, uh, who played drums and shook ones, lived in this lived in this um in this like studio space that was occupied by one of the guys um, who played in that band rx bandits and then also like recorded you know music out of it um and they were in orange county and and um our buddy jimmy was living there and so that was one of the places that we would crash when we were in that you know when we were in the area and so one night we're staying there and our buddy jimmy goes listen i know this guy he's kind of a weirdo which is like how all of these stories start um i know this guy is kind of a weirdo he used to work at a water park not too far away um if you guys want um we can go there we can hop the fences and he knows how to turn all the like slides on 
um, and we can have free reign of this water park after hours. And so we're all like, fucking say no more. Like, get us there as quickly as humanly possible. Um, and so it was us, and then we were on tour with a band from, um, from California uh, called All Teeth. Um, dudes who went on to play in like creative adult and culture abuse um, and uh, a bunch of other bands from that area. And so we go and um, we do, I mean, we get there and the dude goes like, all right, guys, hang out for a second. And he goes into this like building and then all of a sudden you hear just like, Doosh, and then all of the water slides just like come to life. And I just remember us all being like, ah, and just fucking <laughs> sprinting. And dude, like we ran amok for like hours in this water park doing shit that like probably should have crippled us. Um, Stuff you'd never and, do if like the lifeguards were there. Like a million percent. Taking, like, on yeah, totally. Taking like tubes on, on rides. You're not supposed to have tubes on. I mean, just like wild shit. Um, and then all of a sudden we're at the platform of one of these slides that, you know, where you'd go down and we can see the parking lot and we see squad cars pull into the parking lot. And so we go, fuck the cops. And so we, you know, we, we make a run for it. We hop the, or we hide in these like bushes that were like behind some like building of this place. And we sit there they for had what the perimeter literally like they created they a perimeter. Yeah. yeah. Like at that point there was nowhere for us to run. Yep. And they come in, they come into the park and they searched the whole park. And so it felt like, it felt like hours. I mean, you know, it felt like forever that we were just like, we were like huddled up. We were freezing cold cause it was the middle of the night. We were all soaking wet. So we're all just like huddled up together, like, and like flashlights. And I just remember being like, they're going to find us. Like, they're absolutely going to find us. So, like, can they please just find us quickly? You know, because I'm freezing cold. Um, you know, the back of a squad car would be de would be at least warmer than, you know, we are right now. They, they cleared the park. They searched everywhere. They didn't find us. And so we decide it's time to go. So we hop the fence and we start running back to our van. And then somehow i don't then then we made a run for it and we got away um but like you know it's stuff like that like that's you know those are where my memories really um yeah my memories really kind of go when i think of like fine fun time times you know of the band love that story i'll leave it there yeah <laughs> i'll leave it there yeah that's perfect nobody's gonna top that yeah well thanks <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. That was awesome. I had a blast doing that. I love this record. You know, I love this band. Uh, thanks, thanks for doing this. Thanks for putting out the record. Much appreciated. And uh, that's all for tonight. Thanks, dude. Thank you, guys. Thanks, dude. This was fun. Thanks again to Matt, Mike, and James for taking the time to talk to me uh, so candidly about 2010's and Measured Mile. I still adore this band. I still love these records. It is something I will, I will never forget, never stop listening to. It, it was great to see a lot of the behind the scenes. The hilarious story about the mystery label that if you really uh, put your brain to it, I'm sure you can kind of guess at, at what label that was. 
you know, the the hiccups all along the way, all the things that went great, all the cool stories, and more than anything, how much fun those guys had making records together and doing this together and being friends and meeting people on tour, spending that time together and being able to look back now with hindsight and, and appreciate and really value what they did and what they were able to put out and produce as a band. Uh, so for some reason, you've never checked out Make Doing Men before, you know where to find them. Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, whatever you use, it's all there. And Measured Mile, go check it out. Go jump back into it. Uh, hasn't aged a second. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, that one record podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to stay up to date, follow the Instagram page, that one record podcast. Uh, I'm always updating who I'm talking to. Uh, I'm always uh, posting the episodes there. Everything you could possibly need. Uh, and, you know, maybe take a trip down memory lane or discover a new record you've never heard before. Thanks so much for coming back. I know it's been a minute. Uh, thanks to everyone that's still here, still sharing, still listening. Please, you like this episode or any of the other episodes in the back catalog, just share it with your friends. And there's no advertising, there's no money, there's nothing like that. I just love these records. I'm a loser. I'll deep dive on these types of things all day. Uh, this is mainly for me. Uh, I'm just letting you share this with me as well. So stay tuned because we got two Shea More coming. We have Desarc coming. We got Fuck the Facts. We got a bunch more bands coming up this season. And I cannot wait to share the episodes with you. Like I said, it's nothing but fun. So on that note, until next time. <laughs>